The following is a presentation from the Recycling Council of Alberta's 2021 webinar series. On April 13th, experts gathered to discuss how Alberta's planned extended producer responsibility policy will impact municipalities. The RCA would like to thank our supporters for making this webinar possible, including Platinum Sponsor, the Alberta Beverage Container Recycling Corporation. In this segment, Calgary City Councillor Peter DeMong leads the second half of a discussion on EPR implementation in BC, its impact on municipalities, and possible scenarios in Alberta. The panelists include Andrew Doy, Environmental Planner with Metro Vancouver, Ben Von Nostrand, the Environmental Health Services Team Leader with the Columbia Shuswap Regional District, and Cameron Boghen with the Regional District of Okanagan Similkameen. The conversation covers targets and recovery rates, materials, contracts with service providers, and hazardous and special products. So moving forward, targets. In BC, under recycling regulation, the program is required to achieve a 75% recovery rate or another recovery rate established by the director. The recovery rate is defined in section one of the recycling regulation as, quote, the amount of product collected divided by the amount of product produced expressed as a percentage. Uh, now, Recycle BC indicates these material-specific recovery targets are consistent with the European Union's targets, including plastics targets of 50% by 2025 and 55 by 2030, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you have any comments on, on how that target is to be achieved or whether it's geographical aspects? I'd love to have some discussion on this. Who wants to start her off? I can jump in. I, I'm not... You know, the, the big rub for, for us in sort of outside of those big centers, like outside of Vancouver, you know, where the rates that we collect probably aren't to those um, targets, but the province overall is achieving the targets. So that's always been a rub for rural governments, for, for, for the, the, the smaller centers, I guess, is that those targets could be achieved within the city of, the, for the entire province, probably within, you know, Vancouver alone. And so it, it, it leaves us out in, in those smaller areas, arguing and fighting for services. Um, but it, it's, that's the big rub is like, you know, in terms of the province, we're probably achieving those targets in terms of, you know, those rural areas. I'm not sure that those targets are being achieved. And, and, and that's sort of how do we get there to, to increase the level of servicing to, to make sure that those same targets are being met in the rural areas, not just um, those larger centers. And, and that's the challenge, I think, with this program. Yeah, and, and ben, ben, Andrew, and I were on calls because we have the BC Product Stewardship Council. It, it sounds really illustrious. It's just, a, it's just a bunch of us from regional districts that are dealing with solid waste. And Andrew's an incredible guide, so I'll defer to Andrew on any kind of technical stuff because like, we're doing this on the side of our desks and Andrew's living this life uh, 100%. Um, but, but what I'd say is the, um, what we heard in the BC Product Stewardship Council was a lot of issues up north. Uh, the northern communities with longer driving distances, smaller communities, um, felt that this program wasn't working for them. Uh, there wasn't clear guidance in terms of how they could implement curbside programs. A lot of them had unmanned depots because of the small size of their communities. So they're looking at additional costs to make them manned. Recycle BC requires that any depot be fenced, manned, have set hours. Um, they're actually now adding in protecting of some of the materials. So if you're using a roll-off, You've got to protect your, your, your roll-off so they don't get moisture inside because that adds to the weight so you get paid more money. 
So there's certain things there that rural depots, especially, and again, going back to those rural depots, that's 90% of the problem with this program was the rollout of rural depots. Herbside was fairly straightforward. Um, I'd, I'd say on our side here, like um, it's been a very successful program for us because we're a little bit more urban. I'd say the one thing I, I brought up, my complaint, because the standards that they're using, um, they do a driving time distance of 45 minutes um, from a community of 5,000 people. So uh, I have some communities there that are just on the cusp. But my main issue is we have potentially one private sector depot for Penticton, which is 30,000 people. So if you're, if you're, if you're, and we'll get to this, I think it's looking at the questions, the driving time distance one for me was a bit of a, a pain because my 30,000 depot is equivalent to a depot that might serve 5,000 people. So that one depot is being overwhelmed, there's problems in terms of, I get the calls about people, there's lineups. So uh, managing the service levels, the driving time up north was the big one. Ability to access smaller communities was another one. My issue down here is, is only having one depot for, a, for an urban area didn't work, but it did meet the, the program guidelines. And so that was my issue down here. And you, Andrew. Yeah, um, I, I think for, for when we, when BC went through this transition, I think it, it was a, it was a bit of a sea change for us because the way that we had counted uh, capture of, of materials in, in the blue box program, for example, going forward was a bit different than how the producers counted in that, um, we could only count what was put out at the curb uh, and we had no idea how much was going out in the first place unless, you know, the whole province was doing waste composition studies and we knew how much was ending up in the garbage, for example. Um, and, and when the producer agencies took over, uh, then they knew that how much uh, was being put out onto the market uh, and, and could count the recovery rate. So we really couldn't judge uh, necessarily whether there was a big difference in the performance once, once it went into an EPR program. So when you're looking at the performance metric, you're kind of looking to make sure that um, the producers agencies kind of have their feet to the fire and they continue to improve on performance um, because we really couldn't judge whether or not things got better. It was just too, too different uh, a way of counting um, to sort of say, you know, the way local governments did it, it had this kind of performance. And then when the EPR program, there was a, it was, it was completely separate. Uh, and so I think it's, it's the keeping the feet of the, of the producers, um, incentivized or keeping the producers incentivized uh, to continue to perform better year over year. Uh, so the performance metric, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's the, I guess it's the continuous improvement aspect rather than the unit itself. I wouldn't get too bogged down into what the percentage is, as long as it's improving, um, then that's kind of what you'd like to see as a, as a stakeholder. The other flip is 25%. 25% is you're giving them a license to pollute that 25%, right? So right. on our side, that was contentious. And so, but the, what we have is a consortium of EPR programs in BC. Uh, they're under the banner SABC, and they're now assisting in terms of doing waste audits. Um, so they're doing a waste audit with me in two weeks from now. So when we find those that we're going to parse out, they're paying extra money to parse out those materials that are EPR to sort of show what percentage of, is going in the garbage. Which for local governments that run a facility, that is that is a metric you need to know, like how much. Absolutely. So, um, they, they are paying for it, but the twenty five percent license to pollutes the bigger issue than the seventy five percent, and making sure that they do their annual reviews, which is required under our legislation, and then the five year uh, program update, where we can then hold them to the fire, because that's really we have no power as local governments. It is the ministry that has the power under the recycling regulation in BC. 
So giving them the, our, our feedback every five years is, is really what, what we have, the only power we really have. We do complain a lot too. And with, through the, and I would suggest Alberta look at our example of the BC Product Stewardship Council, where we have a local governments that are dealing with EPR issues because we have the ministry on the call, we have the stewards on the call, and we have a high level group of people from across BC that can raise concerns. And it's been effective for us. So when you say those five-year five year, uh, reminders, so to speak, when do they start looking at increasing from 75% up? Like I would imagine the continuous improvement that Andrew commented on at some point, you're going to say, okay, 75%, you've got a, li- a license to pollute for 25%. At what point do you start raising those target levels? Uh, t- typically the in the program plan, the producer agencies will set their own performance targets. So you know and it and it doesn't it doesn't depending on the product category like for example if we're talking about electronics um they typically don't have a percent recovery because it doesn't apply in in a longer life mm-hmm. uh product uh for the shorter term ones um like for beverage containers and for packaging and printed paper where the turnaround is very quick those tend to be the ones that have the the sort of 75% and above performance target uh, and typically the programs set those targets themselves. And often it's sort of like a year over year improvement is, is sort of what, what they propose. Um, and then in, it, it becomes the job of the ministry to uh, evaluate what those uh, targets are and say, you know, yes, we agree. Those are uh, effective targets or, you know, maybe you should be a bit more ambitious or, you know, oh, wow, those are really high. <laughs> Good luck. Um, but it's, it's up to the producer agencies to sort of determine for themselves what those should be. And then the, the ministry judges whether or not those are reasonable. Um, well, that's an excellent segue into a question that Katie has asked. And that is, does the, does the percentage recovery targets also address percentage of, of products actually recycled or just weight of products collected? So basically, is there, is there a separation between the plastics collected, the paper collected, the, the, the uh, uh, single-use items? Uh, do they segregate or is it all one combined? Like, listen, we just got this much. Here it is. Uh, t- typically... The recovery rate or the capture rate or whatever that that percentage is normally is what's collected. So it's it's sort of what what comes through the front door of of the processing facility. Uh, there's a separate requirement in BC around uh, reporting on what the ministry calls end fate materials, and that is what the breakdown is of the material once it's collected. Where does it go from from there? So uh, effectively, if you're kind of using the MRF uh, analogy. Uh, your, your recovery rate is measured by the, the scaled amount at, at your gate. Um, and then the material going out being sold to brokerages and, and, and to markets is, is captured under a different part of the, of the annual reports that the, the programs are required to do. So if it goes, you know, say, for example, 15% is garbage, they have to disclose that in the annual report. If, uh, if the metals go to market in the United States, then they disclose that amount. Uh, if, if the plastics are handled uh, domestically within the province, then they disclose that amount and so on. So they're, they're required to sort of... So, so in effect, they, they, they're responsible for, for reporting where the material is and what the percentages are and where it goes, but not necessarily mandated to collect a certain percentage of specific materials, just a general 75% grouping. Okay. And, right. and, and I'm not questioning it. I'm just trying to understand it at this point. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, that's, 
that's the overall. Uh, sometimes the ministry requires more detailed breakdown. So for beverage containers, um, historically, they've had to they've had to report on recovery rates for all the different material types and, and mm-hmm. beverage container types. Uh, Recycle BC, when it started, I believe only had the overall rates, but now they're they have specific or they had the overall targets, but now they have specific targets for metals for rigid plastics, for film plastics, for glass. So so over time, the ministry is, is driving the programs to be more specific in their targets. Okay. And, and I'm going to move to Christine in one moment. I just have one more question with regards to the recovery rates on the, uh, the, the rural versus urban. We seem to have a very large paradigm difference as to what, how much, and where. Is there a realistic understanding? Would it be realistic to put different targets on rural collections and versus urban collections? Because as somebody was saying, it's you could easily see a 90% recovery rate in, in, in an urban, whereas you're lucky to get maybe 20 to 30% over in a rural. Is that is that reasonable or is it better to have the overall provincial same all across the province? Uh, I, I've heard rumors, and I don't know if it's true or not, or, or concerns that we are that that uh, recycle BC is will get the entire thing. Uh, the entire amount that they need to hit the targets and then not worry about a couple of the really far outreached collection depots. I think it's an excellent point um, that, that, that you bring up and, and that would be, um, you know, certainly supported, I think, by those more rural areas is having a target that better suits um, our areas rather than relying on that provincial target. I'm not sure how uh, that would go over in terms of the stewardship program, but it would definitely help to, um, um, I think, push the stewards to provide those services in those more rural communities. Okay, so it is something that we should be considering as we develop this program. Cameron wants to quick jump in on that. Well, I just say they, they do annually report by regional district, they're required to, uh, that most CPR programs in BC are required. It's part of our solid waste management planning exercises to look at these. Um, I look at mine every five years, supposed to. Okay. Um, so we do then get that broken out. And, and like Andrew said, the, it's not so much the number you're worried about is, are they improving? And we have seen EPR programs that are honestly improving. I would say Recycle BC so far has been one of those ones that is trying to improve in fits and starts. There are EPR programs that have basically self, self-destructed, um, in those programs, they, the ministry hears a lot from us on those programs because they've gone backwards in terms of the amount of service they provide. So the numbers don't mean much. What you need is um, a, a local government group. And we, we've formed the BC Product Stewardship Council, the, all the regional districts in BC. And then you also need the ministry to be really working hard with stewards to ensure that they're doing incremental increases and, and betterment of their processes to ensure that the, the customers, the residents of BC are serviced better. If you don't have those, it doesn't matter what your plan says. And we've seen the Ministry of Environment Go, go up and down as cuts happen. That the, like I'd say when I first started 16 years ago, they were a very strong group that was able to implement amazing programs. Cuts, 2008, not so strong. Now we're starting to see the group get stronger and stronger, but it just takes a few people in that key, key department for EPR program for a province to disappear, move on to other jobs, retire. Then your programs can go, for my, my, my impression, go back down again. So there's a lot of factors here. The number is only one of them, and it really is set by the stewards. Um, it's really keeping them keep their feet to the fire, as Andrew said. Okay. Well, thank you again for that. 
Oh, just one, just one further thing. I'd, Go ahead. And, and full credit to the ministry. One of the other uh, wise decisions they made, um, in addition to having the the recovery rate uh, performance target, is they required recycled BC to disclose sort of the uh, service level in terms of curbside service, multifamily service, the number of depots, et cetera, for the existing system before the stewards took over. Uh, and then they required that the uh, Recycle BC report out on that. So if there was a dramatic shift, like for example, like you were saying, if 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 they could meet their 75% target by only servicing the large urban centers, um, then what happens to the rest of the province? Um, so in, in this circumstance, the, the ministry uh, required Recycle BC to disclose the numbers of of uh, units they were servicing, and you certainly there would be a lot of questions asked if those uh, if those counts started dropping uh, because they were hitting their their uh, tonnage targets. Uh, right. So it, it wasn't necessarily a performance target, but it was another measure that the ministry had to really understand what was happening on the ground and ensure that service levels were being maintained and hopefully improved throughout the province. And there wasn't a circumstance of of it backsliding. So Uh, basically a a baseline KPI to start off to know that you, you know, this is, this is your pass fail group lineup, the very worst situation. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 and to be fair to Recycle BC, really what we've seen uh, in BC, I mean, the multifamily is a bit of an unfolding, evolving sector, but on the curbside, um, there are now more multi, or more curbside units being serviced by the program than were being serviced by local governments prior to the program starting. So they've actually expanded the collection. So, um, you know, full credit to them uh, and, and rolling that out and, and continuing to improve on, in that area. Okay, thank you for that. So we will now jump back to Christina, who's got a couple of uh, questions from the audience. Please carry on. Great, thanks, Peter. Yeah, just want to jump in on a couple of um, material-specific questions that are that are kind of interesting. Um, one is basically how do you, how do you handle how should we handle PPP materials that need to be managed in the organic stream? So that's things like paper towels, compostable packaging, those things that really need to be managed as organics. And then also material specific, what about streetscape? What about the the public area materials that I know have been problematic? And I I believe that all of our guests have experience for sure in this area. So I'd love to hear from them on, on those two material specific questions. Yeah, I, I kind of jump, organics is a passion of mine. Um, I'd say BC right now, there's, there's, and the federal government now talking about some of the stuff that they're doing with single use items. Um, organics needs to be discussed. Uh, we need to have clear rules and regulations around um, paper and, and uh, wood fiber packaging. Uh, we need to have very strong conversations about compostable plastics. Um, this discussion isn't being done effectively. EPR might be a way for us to sort of bring that in. Um, like the OMAR regulation, the Organic Matter Recycling Regula- Regulation in British Columbia, uh, doesn't permit these materials to go in at, to, as a feedstock into your um, into your um, program, but it's getting in there. Like any residentially collected organics in BC, it's going to have something, and they're probably going to be have organic plastics, probably going to have um, wood fiber from other materials that aren't allowed inside the program, including paper, cardboard. Um, wood, wood cutlery that we're starting to see more of um, the even the straws from A and W that we get now that are, are not um, not plastic. And it has to be discussed. And I'm not sure where Alberta is on this. I haven't been following you guys's uh, composting regulation. I totally admit Alberta was a world leader in terms of of um, organics diversion. Uh, you guys have excellent facilities in Edmonton and Calgary. 
uh, some of your smaller sites are, are really examples that I look to when I was designing some of our programs. So you guys could help help us as much as we could help you in terms of dealing with these single use items and how they can be used in organics. And, and uh, the federal negotiations or discussion that they're having right now on banning at the federal level, they've, they're, they're, their uh, policy groups have been pushing towards uh, composting of single use materials. And that concerns me without a broader discussion on how that would affect us. Um, maybe I'll let Andrew talk about the rest of it. Yeah, uh, thanks, Kim. Just just further on the on the composting, um, and I'm not. I have to admit, I'm not totally up to speed on how other provinces deal with it. But the or sorry, compostable packaging and printed paper is in scope in BC. So it, it it's not like you if a if a producer agency said, okay, well, you know, we're gonna um, we're gonna have this material go through. Um, you know, composting because then we don't have to pay fees to the producer agency. Um, that doesn't happen here necessarily. So if it's packaging, no matter what the end fate is, whether it's recycling, whether it's uh, composting, whether it's garbage, the producers are paying fees no matter what. Uh, and so I just wanted to clarify that, that that isn't a way to sort of circumvent the system. Um, and additionally on that, all of our, just like for, for recyclables processing, um, all nearly all of our uh, compost processors here are private sector and they set their own policies around what's acceptable. Uh, and like Cam said, um, we're, we're going through the process of, of the OMAR regulation being, or, or OMAR being uh, revised. Um, they're looking at different aspects. And so it's, it's not necessarily at this stage built for accepting uh, compostable plastics. Um, and, and so it's a bit of an evolving target, but it, it certainly is in scope. Um, and shifting gears a little bit to the streetscape, um, it's, it's something that has been of keen interest, certainly to my members uh, and probably for, for others that have large kind of recreational um, or, you know, um, like communities, um, like ski resorts and so on that have a lot of street traffic and, and so on and, and material generated out in, in public, in the public realm. Um, it's, it's no doubt a challenge. Uh, there's, there is high contamination. Um, we've ha some of my members have, have done audits to, and demonstrated that you can get the contamination levels down to around uh, residential collection levels. So it's certainly possible to have that material collected. Um, one of the big challenges that we've seen through a number of these audits, both the ones that RecycleBC has done and the ones that the municipalities have done is that there's a, a lot of people who purchase hot beverages in particular, and then don't consume them. <laughs> so you have a mostly full uh, coffee cup uh, that's being discarded. Uh, and that becomes uh, incredibly challenging on how to manage. Um, but we've certainly done collaborative work with RecycleBC, um, both around uh, designing of bins to highlight to residents on what material should go in which bin. Um, how they can be serviced by city crews and so on, but it continues to evolve. Uh, it's something that um, I, I feel like RecycleBC uh, is being very deliberate about um, their choices in this, uh, in particular around the challenges to separate the material, and make sure it's recycled. Um, but uh, I, th I think it's one area where uh, I think the local governments here are probably expecting some significant progress soon. Um, because the program was implemented in 2014 and we still really haven't seen much evolve. Uh, a lot of studies, but in terms of rolling out a program, we haven't seen much happen um, in, in quite some time. 
Christina, did you have another question or do you want me to go back to mine? Sure. Why don't I do There's just, there's a very big one that I think is, yep. it's almost the elephant in the room. And that is because we know EPR is coming or it appears that EPR is coming. How do municipalities respond right now? Like, should they be freezing their contracts? Is this not the right time to be negotiating contracts? Is this not the right time to be making any program changes? Like, do we need to just put things on hold now until we know what the rules are going to be and what the future looks like? If you're going to go into a new contract, you need to add a clause in there that allows you to go to arbitration. So uh, we did this with uh, with when we when we were midstream for MMBC, Recycle BC. Uh, we're midstream now in organics uh, for our curbside collection contracts. We work with a major hauler. So we put uh, clauses in there to, to identify this, to identify that the risk, who would carry the risk. So the regional district declared that we would carry the risk in terms of any fines or penalties. Um, but that was identified just because we didn't know anything at that stage when we were negotiating that contract. We clarified in that, that we would first go to uh, negotiations and as required, go to binding arbitration. And when you're dealing with a collection program, you're dealing over a five-year, at least millions of dollars generally. So we are um, very happy to go to arbitration as needed to define that contract role. But you need to sh you should be installing that into your any new contracts if you know this is coming. So it gives you the clarity in how to proceed with your contracted services, um, either the landfill operator, um, your curbside collector, whatever other services that might be impacted by this change. Putting those clauses in there gives you the ability to, to move forward in a, in, a, in a clear manner for both parties. And again, arbitration, I believe, is cost effective, at least as a tool to, to implement good negotiations, because no one wants to go to arbitration. It's not the funnest thing to do ever. I'd say it's not fun at all. But it is that tool that you will use if you are stuck on, on something to have a fair, fair party. And I would say for my elected officials, when they see a third party come in like an arbitrator and say, hey, uh, that's fair, great. I've never had to use arbitration because generally the, these multinationals that have a lot, like midstream negotiations with a multinational is not good for local government. It doesn't help you. Um, but what we've done locally is we've tried to package our contracts um, similar to what Recycle BC does is have a standard contract for all of our local governments. We go to tender at the same time. We negotiate as a party. So my member, my member municipalities, I have six of them. Uh, five of them are on board with our negotiations with, with these changes. So that gives us more bulk, gives us more power, and it allows us to, if we have to go to arbitration and the lawyer's costs are a lot lower, that's how you got to do it, I think. That's my opinion. Yeah, I would agree with Cam, like just having some sort of outs in any new agreements that you're developing with that, with the sort of the, I guess the idea that the program may be changing. So right into those uh, contracts, some sort of clause about arbitration or about uh, a termination, um, because you don't want to be locked in when these programs become available. And, and like I said earlier, you want to be an early adopter. And so any, any mechanisms or tools that you can sort of have in place now to get on board early is going to help you down the road. Yeah, and I think a lot depends on on what the landscape is currently. Um, uh, for I think the the majority of BC, often what ends up happening is is the residential. If if it's not being the service isn't being provided by city crews using city assets, it's it's contracted to a private hauler, um, and that private hauler may or may not have an interest in participating in the program. Um, in 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 the Recycle BC program. Um, that was possible if if uh, 
if the local government was turning collection over to Recycle BC, uh, obviously they're not going to have their own trucks and crews to do it. They're going to hire a contractor. So there could be an opportunity for them uh, to, to participate directly with the, with the producer agency. Um, or there could be um, an, uh, an opportunity to compete for multifamily service. Uh, and so what we saw here, and it was kind of a cornerstone of the Recycle BC plan, was that in order for a local government to uh, participate in the program as a contractor and, and receive the financial incentive, they had to be um, they had to be able to end their contracts with their haulers if they had any. Um, and some of the things that went along with that, particularly over the transition, was, uh, for example, if you had a citywide contract for, uh, and this is only going to apply to the large urban centers, but if you had a citywide contract for multifamily, um, and the sorry to take a step back the recycle bc's original plan around multifamily was essentially to provide funding into the system and then have private haulers compete for those buildings and that the the program was intended to provide higher levels of service because there's going to be multiple private haulers competing for the business um in in reality we saw some haulers not want to participate in the program so that competitive element didn't really happen. Um, but w- one of the intents of the program was that in municipalities that had private haulers, um, where they they had one hauler that was providing that service for the whole municipality, uh, as long as your contract was enforced, you had exclusive jurisdiction uh, to control multifamily collection in your community. So that was kind of an additional benefit to the local government is that there wouldn't be additional competition coming in as long as you had a contract already pre-existing. Uh, but that was kind of a transition thing that sort of went away over time as, as um, uh, those contracts became or were, were due for renewal and, and so on. Um, but it, it really depends on uh, how, if you have a lot of private sector haulers, how they would like to engage, whether they would rather uh, contract with the local government or whether they would rather contract directly with the producer agency. And and in BC, we sort of seen a blend of the two. Christina? Yeah, I think um, I want to turn it back over to you, Peter, because we okay. really want to cover special waste, but maybe just before, because this actually took us right into a question I was going to deal with later. Um, and I, I don't know if, if Heather is comfortable jumping back in, but there was a question actually directed at you, Heather, around whether or not you've actually looked at this whole issue of multifamily, because multifamily is not all necessarily managed directly by a municipality. Um, some of it actually may actually be either managed by through the private sector or may, in fact, there may be other organizations like homeowners associations that actually manage some of the multifamily or some of the larger residential areas that are not necessarily captured under the, the municipal um, uh I guess municipal management. So I don't, Heather, I don't know if you have a comment on that to kind of take us then into the special waste area. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Christina. So I think, I think it's something that we're paying attention to. I think it's also something that we really need to hear back from municipalities and and others affected in that, in that issue so that we have a good path forward, right? Like what I, what I have learned about EPR, you know, our last year on this file is, um, it's, it's fairly complex. There's a lot of players involved and we really need to take a collaborative type approach to build a system that's going to work well. Um, and so that means that we need to hear from, from everyone who's affected so that we can design the right system for Alberta. Okay, great, Heather. So I think over to you then, Peter, and we can jump into the special waste area. 
All right. Thank you very much, uh, Christina. So we're going to move into something called the hazardous uh, waste for homeowners. Um, First question I want to kind of toss out there, is this something that the BC uh, EPR program covers or not, the the household hazardous waste or HHW? Uh, It covers certain components of, I guess. There's the BC used oil recycling program Mm -hmm. for used oil and filters and uh, antifreeze. Uh, I guess you could argue that uh, paints are also covered under an EPR program, but um, we have, you know, established hazardous waste depots at our landfills um, that that we fund, and we partner with those stewardship groups where we can. But it's for a lot of those unknowns, um, you know, the the mercury, the old weird unlabeled materials in your garage when you're cleaning those things out. We don't want those in the landfill. So we've opted to provide that sort of service at a cost to, to the taxpayer. But um, in terms of a stewardship program for those unknown hazardous wastes, there, there's not one in BC currently. Okay. Because, I mean, we, we here in Alberta already do uh, uh, oil and, and, and uh, paint and, and all these in a completely separate stewardship program, not fine, not in EPR. So are you saying, so, so I'm trying to understand the BC model first before I ask you about the Alberta model. So you're saying that portions of those that, that we take care of in our, that stewardship program are done through EPR or are mostly done from the local government level as an aside. So what I'm trying to ask is, is there a program for those heavy metals or heavy, sorry, uh, uh, those, those hazardous waste pro, pro, uh, pro products, not necessarily household, but in general, because we've got the programs and it's, it's open to many different, uh, uh, whether it be commercial or not. And uh, so uh, the recycling regulation in British Columbia determines CPR. It's, it's, it's the Bible. So uh, any, any vendor, any person that falls under that regulation uh, falls under the regulation. The regulation has different components. So each component might be different. So PPP is residential. Um, used oil, I think, was a mix. Now it's, now it's mainly just the residential component that the steward takes care of. And that's one of the problems that we had was there was a big shift uh, a few years ago in terms of used oil. Um, paint is just residential. Um, tires, both. Um, so you see a mix of those, both ICI and residential programs through the recycling regulation. And the stewards are only responsible for what the province tells them they're responsible for. It's not up to them. It's really up to the province to say, this is what we're doing through the recycling regulation. So as Ben said, certain products are covered under the recycling regulation today. So I, I similar to Ben, I ran a household hazardous waste depot. We have lighting equipment, that's mercury. We have alarms, that's radioactive. ECB ballast, it's lighting. Uh, we have paint. We have uh, some of the other materials that are run through the product care program, which can include gasoline. Um, we have the used oil program. And so as those come through, we've incorporated that. But as Ben said, what's remaining left over, and that's something that the province of BC is now considering, and they've done a lot of consultation on this, like two or three years almost, of asking us the same question over and over. But I know from my end on the hazards, we want to see the single-use propane tanks taken care of in our regional district. Uh, we see a lot of hot tub pool chemicals. We see a lot of uh, other uh, residential unknowns or residential materials that don't fall into the program. If a paint can loses its label, that paint can doesn't go through the product care program. It has to come to us as a HHW that we have to pay for. We have to pay for. So some of the strictness of the programs, we actually go over and above what, what's allowed in BC. Um, again, there's other groups that j- just follow the stewardship model. So they only take partial HHW right now. 
what I saw in, in the Alberta approach to the policy you guys are discussing, it's kind of catching up to where we want to get to in the next year or two, listening to the rumblings from the Ministry of Environment. Um, and that and to the BC Ministry of Environment is looking at adding those orphan, call them orphan products. Um, and if they can add those, we'd be a lot happier, especially the single-use propane tanks and any of the other hazardous materials that are commonly being brought in by the residential sector. The ICI sector and hazards, they're different. And yeah. We, we have uh, two, in my area, we have two very robust collectors from commercial. Um, so they are available in my area. My concern would be up north, where right. there are commercial options for the HHW, not HHW, sorry, hazardous waste from ICI. Yeah. So that's where so it's we're, So we're back to the whole concept of can we more meld or merge a little bit of the ICI in these, in these, in these remoter areas into the whole EPR uh, basis. I don't want to go down that path just yet. We kind of went down there. What I did want to try and figure out is we like right now here in Alberta, we've got a number of major stewardship programs. We've got a, a BMB, the for bottle, uh, ABMB, Alberta bottle uh, manufacturing. Jeez, oh, I can never remember the name of that thing. Um, we've got the Arma, which basically deals with the tires and oils and paints and electronics. So we've got a couple of stewardship programs already that it's going to be a question as to how do we meld those two organizations into an EPR. My question to you is, did, did BC prior to their EPR program have these stewardship programs already in existence? Or was EPR brought forward to deal with all of these because there was no existing organizations for them? Uh, there, there were. Um, I think the um, the tires uh, was a was a, a stewardship program run by the the ministry. Um, I think it was first so financial incentive for recycling and scrap tires was was the the government program um, for oil i believe it was as well so there were some um programs that when they were brought in particularly the automotive ones uh they were stewardship programs run by uh, run by the province um but we also had beverage container deposits uh from you know 1970 um then we had uh i think around you know 97 uh, and there's probably some folks on the on the call that probably know this better than i do but um there uh, there were, um, uh, I think it was called the residual category, which included things like paints and solvents and flammable items and pharmaceuticals and so on. Uh, those were sort of brought in as, as uh, EPR programs. Uh, and then in 2004 was kind of like the big merging, like you said, uh, Peter, um, the merging of um, these programs into all into an EPR program. Uh, so then uh, there was, so I think the, there was the Litter Act, which was the beverage containers. There was a residual one, which covered off a number of items. There was pro uh, stewardship programs that were being delivered uh, by the province. They all were bundled together and now uh, regulated through one single regulation. And then underneath that, there are a number of schedules which identify specific items that uh, specific project categories had to manage. Uh, and so that that's kind of how it evolved here. Uh, and then there were... Um, or there were additional ones that came after that. So in 2007, it was electronics. Uh, and then um, 2010, um, 2011, 2012 was different further electronics. Um, so so the first, first phase was uh, TVs, computers, monitors, printers, that kind of thing. And then like other AV equipment and then virtually everything else, um, batteries and so on uh, came after that. And then uh, in 2011, 
packaging was regulated with a three-year implementation time horizon. So cabinet said in 2011, three years from now, there will be a packaging EPR program starting. Okay, fantastic. Um, if there's no more chat about that, I'm going to get down to one of the main questions that I kind of have going forward here. Well, uh, and oh, go ahead, Cameron. So just to clarify, the EPR program we're talking about is recycling regulation. So there's an overall EPR one regulation, just to clarify, but there are different EPR stewards. Um, so for example, beverage, we have Encorp that deals with certain beverages and the beer guys that deal with the beer side. So what the what the act requires, sorry, the regulation requires, is that you have to form a stewardship group that manages your materials. So there can be multiple stewardship groups dealing with similar materials. Um, so I saw someone talk about batteries, and there's two different programs in BC. Yeah, that's not lead, lead acid batteries are different than your household batteries. So those two programs do pretty good work. Um, so that's the the, pro, the 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 regulation is now one EPR program in terms of recycling regulation, but the different stewards are like, if you go to the, Re the recycling council of BC and go into, I think I can't remember what the section is, but they explain all the different stewardship groups and show all their logos. There's, there's a, I don't know how many, a dozen or more, at least different groups that are doing this. Some do a variety of materials like product care. Uh, some are very specialized to, to certain materials, like say the pharmacy group currently. So uh, that's the difference between it. So we have different stewards, but there's basically one EPR program for BC under the recycling regulation. So that to me brings up a whole segue of uh, what is a stewardship versus a pro, but I don't know if we have the time to go into that detail. Maybe we can hold that in enticement for anybody else that wants to come to the next chat. Um, the, the, uh, the big question I've got is, we, we, Alberta talks an awful lot about a made in Alberta solution. And, and although I appreciate that tremendously, there's always room for improvement, always room for, to, to find a, 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 a unique way of doing things that are truly uh, uh, provincial centric. Uh, my question is why Alberta would not make things simple and more or less follow the BC EPR model. Uh, it seems municipalities are reasonably happy with it in BC, and this would result in significant harmonization advantages of producers. So how, how do you feel about like, sh should we just basically come in, photocopy your guys' rules and bring them forward and say, here's, here's what we're doing versus coming up with our own unique Alberta system? Um, I, I think you have to frame it very carefully. I've worked with local politicians for a while now. They don't want to hear BC. They don't want to hear someone else. <laughs> but what they want to hear, they want to hear about efficiencies. So you have to frame this question carefully because um, there's, there's no a priori kind of, this is perfect. You have to follow this way, but there's benefits to harmonization and those should be discussed. And that's, that's the approach I would say on this question is it's a, it's going to go back to the politicians. And when we saw any change to anything, they don't want to hear another community's doing it. They want to hear what the benefit is for their community. And, and that's how I'd approach this is by harmonizing with British Columbia or Saskatchewan or the territories of Yukon. Then, then if you can harmonize these with these different groups across even North America, eventually, you're going to have the ability for people from Alberta to come to BC and understand how the program works and vice versa. Uh, I, I got a lot of 403 numbers coming in. Every There are a lot of Albertans moving here right now. I spend a lot of my day talking to them about how the program works. So it would be nice to have harmonization, but we have to be careful how we say it. Like BC, um, BC has a habit of trying to be um, the best of the best, or mm -hmm. I don't know how to describe it. Sometimes we come across a bit like we're better than other groups. Um, I'd hate for that to get in the way of a political conversation where there really 
efficiencies make sense. You, you can have the same back end where the different companies can collect the same materials. Merlin Plastics in Calgary can work with Merlin Plastics in Vancouver. They can they can deal with these materials in similar ways. Um, so there's a lot of synergies that we should be considering, and I think that's the way to look at it. Not whether the BC is correct or the best, or, or has to be followed, or Ontario is the best, correct, and has to be followed. You can do a made in Alberta decision, but still think about those synergies and how you can save money and, and help the public understand how the program works. Thank you for listening to this 2021 webinar series. Tune in to the next episode for the second half of this podcast with municipalities. Search for On the Cusp, Alberta Circular Podcast on iTunes and Google Podcasts for more from the RCA or visit recycle.ab.ca to see the full presentations.